If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 3. It will be this morning in verses 18 through 22. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that'll be page 1016 in the Pew Bibles. And we'll be this morning in our regular exposition of 1 Peter in chapter 3, the end of the chapter, verses 18 through 22. Let me just say, uh, while you're turning there, a word of thanks for those who prayed for me last weekend and uh, with my visit to minister in Atlanta at Mount Vernon Baptist Church. It was a blessed time, and, and God was gracious to bless in a number of ways. I just want to encourage you, you know, we as pastors often get to visit other churches and settings like that. We get to meet with pastors and meet with folks, and they give so many words of encouragement. I mean, the number of people at that church that are praying for us thoughtfully and and sweetly, they just um, made so many expressions of their regard for our church and their prayers for our church. And I just thought, um, I hear those sorts of things all the time. I've got to bring that back to the congregation and make you aware of that. Uh, so many that have um, supported this work and prayed for this work. And um, it was an encouragement to be there with those brothers and sisters. Let's read together 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. We pray that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Bless this hour and bring good from it for all of your people and those who are yet outside of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is in an upper room with his disciples for a time of intimate fellowship. At this meeting, the Lord provided some of His most concentrated teaching on the subject of discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. And here Jesus is with His band of intimates, with those who followed Him faithfully and had kept His word, those whom He loved unto the end. Here He is with these men, and Jesus opens up His heart to them in the most intimate fashion. And midway through His time of teaching, He says this, recorded for us in John 15, Verses 18 through 20, he says to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, Peter... The disciple and the author of the epistle we've been considering in this series of sermons, he was there in that upper room with the Lord among that group of the Lord's intimate disciples. Peter could hardly have anticipated what the next few hours would hold, 
let alone what the next few decades would hold for him as he followed and served Jesus as one of his called out apostles. Very soon, within a matter of weeks, he would experience the fulfillment of these very words from the Lord, and indeed, he would experience them again and again throughout his life. He would come to know firsthand that following Jesus requires that one embrace and take on the opposition of the world. Now, some 30 years on from the Upper Room Discourse, where that text was taken from in John 15, Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor who are enduring the world's hostility. He writes now as a seasoned apostle, and he tells them about what it means to suffer for righteousness' sake. Last week, Pastor Lai Chow preached on 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, where Peter instructs Christians on how to suffer well at the world's hands, uh, always while doing good, of course, and showing forth Christian hope. Now, in our text, very much connected to those verses we considered last week, Peter gives them an incentive, an encouragement as they suffer. They are to remember that their Lord, the one whom they follow, suffered too. And not only did he suffer, but his suffering was of such a quality that it actually secured their redemption. Peter is calling to their minds the suffering of their master, and as he does so, his aim is to encourage the people of God as they find themselves suffering in various situations. So the focus of this sermon today will be on verse 18, where we will consider the character of Christ's suffering. And then we'll consider some points of application at the end of this message for Christians as we too endure the world's hostility even as we seek to do good. So the focus of this sermon is on verse 18, which we'll consider in a moment. But before we do, what do we do with verses 19 through 21? I'll read those verses again. He was raised in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey the word when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to quote Martin Luther on this text. Uh, just yesterday, we celebrated the 500-year anniversary of his famous Here I Stand speech. This is what uh, that man of resolution and confidence had to say about this passage. This is a wonderful text, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. If you know Martin Luther, that's a big thing for Luther to say because uh, he wasn't unsure about a whole lot, but he couldn't quite make out this passage. This is one of the most obscure and inscrutable passages, not only in the New Testament, but in the Bible. Jesus apparently, we're told, did some preaching. What was the character of that preaching? What was even the message he preached? We might assume the gospel, but it could be his victory over the spirits and powers. It could be about the coming age of the church. What was the message he preached? And to whom did he preach? Well, the text says the spirits in prison, but who were they? Uh, when did this preaching take place? Did it take place between Jesus' death and resurrection? Did it take place shortly thereafter? 
Many commentators think it took place in the days of Noah. When did this preaching take place? In what way are those spirits in prison connected to the events surrounding Noah's flood? And then how is it that the events of the flood are related to baptism? And in what way can it be said that baptism saves you? Okay, let me first say a few things about obscure passages in the Bible. Number one, we shouldn't be surprised to find obscure passages in Scripture. The Bible is a big book, 66 books, written over a couple thousand years with 40-plus different authors. We shouldn't be surprised there are some obscure passages in the Bible. Moreover, the fact that there are some obscure passages in the Scriptures shouldn't be a source of discouragement to us. In fact, we should expect that we will find them in different places. Secondly, let me say, I, don't, I think when we don't understand a passage, that is, we can't arrive safely at a proper interpretation or meaning of the text with any certainty, we should frankly acknowledge it. Okay, so this is very important for those who would preach and teach. Uh, there are certain passages in Scripture that are just more clear than others, and there are certain statements we can make about God and about man and about sin and about Christ and about the church with greater finality and certainty than we can from other passages in the Bible. Uh, the answer, I don't know, is an acceptable answer when we don't know. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter acknowledges that there are things in Paul's letters that are, he says, difficult to understand. And if that isn't the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what is. Um, not only because of this passage in 1 Peter, but the whole book of 2 Peter is uh, quite difficult to interpret. Thirdly, let me say this about obscure passages, we should not build our theology, the essentials of our faith, our confessions, our creeds, on what is obscure in the Bible. We should not build our theology on what is obscure in the Bible. I'm not saying we ignore what is obscure in the Bible, but it's not safe to build our theology on these sort of dark corners and crevices in the Scriptures where we find more obscure passages. And fourthly, always remember, brothers and sisters, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. All that is needed for life and godliness is crystal clear in the Scriptures, and we need not be discouraged when we come across things that confuse us. Okay, so the reality is I can't answer many, almost any, of the questions raised by this passage. Uh, I'm just going to come clean and say I don't understand what Peter is saying in verses 19 through 21, and therefore… I don't think it would be profitable for me to try to speculate. At the most, I'd be guessing, and I don't want to do that in a sermon on a Sunday morning that's meant to feed the Lord's people. Now, you may disagree with me in that approach. You may view it as my responsibility when I don't know what a text means to at least make my best guess. But as I've labored with this passage this week, I've concluded that to do so would be irresponsible and unprofitable for you. And that the best thing I can do is to tell you I don't understand these verses. And I'm sorry if that disappoints you, but it seems to me the responsible and honest thing to do. However, that said, I do want to say something about verse 21, okay? And we'll get into the main body of the sermon in just a second. I want to say something about verse 21. I don't think we should understand Peter to mean that the right of baptism, what we witnessed on Easter Sunday a couple of Sundays ago, that the right of baptism has any saving power. Uh, first of all, because that would contradict the Bible's teaching in other places on the subjects of salvation, the new birth, and of course on baptism itself. But I also think that because of the second half of verse 21 and what's said there. Peter says baptism, which in some way corresponds to the flood, 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But then Peter immediately qualifies his statement by essentially saying, we should not think of the physical right of baptism itself as saving us as though the removal of dirt from the body has any saving merit. Like, like going under the water and having dirt removed from your body, which happens in baptism, someone's brought under the water, uh, that doesn't have any saving power in and of itself. Rather, baptism is a symbol of something. Namely, I think Peter is saying it is a symbol, of, it's, it's, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without getting too complicated, I think the appeal to God for a good conscience means that the person enters in upon their baptism in faith, that they have had their hearts cleansed through repentance and have experienced the forgiveness of God and have been made alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who are baptized are, in essence, testifying that their conscience has been cleansed before God. In that sense, it is an appeal to God. It is a testifying before God that my conscience has been cleansed. And of course, we're not to believe that the one being baptized has cleansed their conscience themselves. Rather, their conscience is cleansed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's my best understanding of verse 21. But now I want to consider what is clear and plain and essential and altogether wonderful in verse 18. We read there, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I want us to consider this morning what this passage tells us about the character of Christ's suffering. The character of Christ's suffering. There are four things Peter highlights about the character of Christ's suffering. We'll spend more time on the first than we do on any other point. First of all, first thing to notice about the character of Christ's sufferings, and that is that it only happened once. First of all, it only happened once. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of His people. You may know if you've been a Christian for some time that the book of Hebrews emphasizes this point in a major way. There in Hebrews, Christ as our great high priest is set in contrast to the priests of the Old Covenant. Christ is our great high priest, and He was typified by those Old Covenant priests who are rendered inferior to Christ, who is now our great high priest. And those high priests of the Old Covenant are rendered inferior in at least four ways. First of all, the priests of old had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Christ didn't have to do that because He was sinless. He was the righteous suffering for the unrighteous, but the priests of old, of course, they were sinners themselves and had to offer sacrifices of atonement for their own sins. Secondly, the priests of old had to appear again and again to make their sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of the people. In other words, they had to repeatedly offer sacrifices day by day, month by month, year by year, but Christ's sacrifice, being superior, only needed to be performed once. A third way, the old covenant priests are rendered to be inferior to Christ. The priests of old were prevented by death from continuing, the author of Hebrews tells us, and therefore there had to be this long line, this long succession of priests who would come again and again and again. But the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the last priest. He is now the only priest. And because He lives forever, we will never need any other priest again. Fourthly, the priests of old offered inferior sacrifices. 
Their sacrifice is being the blood of bulls and goats, which we know can't cleanse anybody of their sins. Jesus, our great high priest, actually offered up himself. He was that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He could actually take away our sins through the sacrifice of his own blood. And so, in the light of these things, the author of Hebrews concludes in Hebrews 9, 26 and following, after expostulating on the inferiority of those old covenant priests, he says this, but as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. When Christ comes again for His people, with reference to His people, there's no sin to be dealt with on that day. Why is that? Because at one time on a hill called Calvary, once for all, He put sin away by the death of Himself. And therefore, the only reason He's coming back for Christians is to bear us to God for all eternity, to bring us into everlasting life. He put away sins once. And when He comes again, it won't be to deal with sins, because once and for all, He dealt with our sins on the cross. Christ appeared, as the author of Hebrews says, once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Or as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Or as we have in our text, in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, what does this mean for us? What's the significance? It means, brothers and sisters, that Christ's suffering for sins was utterly decisive. There is no sacrifice left to be offered. There is no more blood that needs to be shed. This is why we object to any notion that the Lord's Supper or any other type of Christian ceremony could ever be a representation of Christ's sacrifice or some kind of reoffering of Christ. We view such notions as a blasphemy against the blood of Jesus. Or you might think of uh, the doctrine held among some professing Christians, the doctrine of penance. The idea that we could secure merit or favor with God by our sacrificial works. We understand such an idea to be blasphemous. Why? Because Christ suffered once for sins. The debt has been paid. We do not add to the Lord's once-for-all sacrifice. As the author of Hebrews says, He has dealt with sin. Christian, there is no more that needs to be done to save your soul and to deliver you from the guilt and penalty of sin. All of the suffering, all the blood that was needed to expiate your sins has been accomplished. The cup of God's wrath has been emptied in Christ. He suffered once for sins. Jesus paid it all, and you can't add to this. Do you want assurance, brother, sister, of your salvation? Do you want to know that Jesus Christ can save you to the uttermost and safely bear your soul to God? Do you want a pledge that God is for you and that there awaits for you no wrath and condemnation but only everlasting life? The answer for you must be found. It can only be found in the finality of the once-for-all sacrifice for your sins. My friend, God is satisfied with the death of His Son. Will you be unsatisfied? You can't add to what your Lord 
has done. Don't be guilty of the same blasphemy to suggest that the death of the Son of God was not enough to purchase your pardon, that somehow more is needed. No, brothers and sisters, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's not of works that I have done. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, and no other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We have no other argument. We know no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Brothers and sisters, we can't add to what our Lord has done. Only His death on the cross, once for all for our sins, can secure our pardon before God. There is no suffering left to be done to secure our pardon. All the suffering required has happened in Christ. He suffered once for sins. And friends, to come to Jesus at all, to have faith in His work on the cross is to believe that He has suffered once and for all. It is to believe that the work is done. Salvation is found only in the once for all suffering of Christ for sins. That's the first characteristic or feature of Christ's sufferings. It happened only once. Secondly, notice with me, it was an act of substitution. It was an act of substitution. For Christ, verse 18, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. At the cross, we have substitution. Jesus Christ the righteous for Alex the unrighteous, or fill in the blank, for Troy the unrighteous, for Mark the unrighteous, for Sue the unrighteous. We have Jesus Christ substituted as the righteous one for those who are unrighteous. There at the cross, we have Jesus in our place. This is the heart of the gospel. Of course, we're told in our day, the idea of substitution, sacrifice of atonement, of propitiation is an intolerable idea. We shouldn't think of any sort of sacrifice happening on the cross or Jesus being crushed to satisfy the wrath of God. Rather, it was more an expression of the magnanimity of Christ. It was Him going to extraordinary, albeit completely unnecessary lengths to tell us that He loves us. It was this overabundance of His largesse that He was expressing there on the cross. But there was no necessity, this whole idea of justice, wrath, we need to get away from that idea. Well, of course, friends, the cross is an expression of the love of God and of the love of Christ, but it is precisely in the sacrifice of Himself, the substituting of Himself for sinners, that the love of God is expressed. It is in His willingness to be that Lamb of God, that sacrifice of atonement to take away the sin of the world. The love of God is expressed precisely in His willingness to sacrifice His only begotten Son for our sins. This is understood in Scripture to be the supreme expression of God's love. Greater love has no one than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends, than that a man substitute himself for another. This is the pinnacle and the summit, the acme of the love of God. And further at the cross, Jesus was not only offering a sacrifice of love, He was actually satisfying the righteous demands of God's law. What we have at the cross, what is so glorious, what is so profound, deeper, I think, than we could possibly know or understand, 
is that at the cross, the love of God and the mercy of God and his justice meet. They kiss at the cross. God is shown to be perfectly loving and tender and compassionate. He is also seen to be holy and just and righteous. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The fact that our sins required by necessity payment, satisfaction, atonement, and then the fact that Jesus met this demand, the demands of justice, that He suffered the penalty due to my sins, this is the ultimate expression of the love of God and the justice of God, that the righteous would substitute Himself for the unrighteous. The Son of God came into the world, and He went to the cross as a sin-bearer, as a substitute to shed His blood in the place of sinners. As we saw in 1 Peter 2, 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. The Apostle John says in 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. Friends, the Bible requires that we view the death of Jesus as a sin-bearing sacrifice, The Bible requires that we view the death of Jesus as a satisfaction of the righteous wrath of God. The Bible requires that we view the death of Jesus as a propitiation for our sins, as purchasing our redemption by His blood, as making atonement for the sins of His people. What we have at the cross, what you have, what I have if you're a child of God, is nothing less than Jesus the righteous in my place. There the righteous suffered for the unrighteous. There the blessed act of substitution took place. There the wrath that I deserve was poured out on the innocent and spotless and righteous Son of God. He took my place, my soul to save. He substituted Himself for me at Calvary. When we looked a few weeks ago at 1 Peter 2.24, there that verse begins by saying, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. I mentioned, by way of illustration, uh, that when we have new members enter the church, they go through a class that we take them through, and then sort of the last step is a membership interview. And always in those membership interviews, I I will ask those who are coming forward to be members, uh, they'll meet with the elders, and we'll ask them uh, to give us their testimony. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? How did you come to know the Lord? And we'll ask them to tell us, what is the gospel? What is the good news? Because we know from Romans 1 that the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. So we want to make sure those coming in understand the good news and are trusting in the good news and the good news alone. And um, for various reasons, it's understandable. Folks can sometimes get nervous in those meetings, though there's no reason to be nervous. Uh, Some folks can get nervous and they might fumble a little bit in answering that question. So to help them, I'll sometimes ask the question, Um, Brother, sister, what does the death of Jesus have to do with your sin? To kind of get to the issue, right? And I said in the sermon on 1 Peter 2.24, we could hardly come up with a better answer than 1 Peter 2.24. This is the essence of faith. He himself bore my sins in his body on the tree. What does the death of Jesus have to do with your sins? He himself bore my sins in his body on the tree on the tree. That's the essence of Christian faith. And I said it's the best concise answer we have in the Bible. Maybe. We might have a better one in 1 Peter 3, 18. What does the death of Jesus have to do, my brother, my sister, with your sins? Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring me to God. I just want to say to everyone here, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're visiting for the first time or not, uh, whether you're young or old, this is the essence of saving faith. The smallest child can understand this. Jesus in my place, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bear my soul to God. You don't have to have a lot of degrees to understand that. You don't have to be far advanced in Christian things to understand Jesus in my place. When God saves a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, He doesn't require them to take a certain test in theology. He doesn't require them to pass certain exams. All you have to know is your need of a Savior and have faith in this simple truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bear my soul to God. That's the good news, brothers and sisters. That is the essence of saving faith. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He, full atonement. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. All right, it only happened once. It was an act of substitution. Thirdly, the suffering of Christ secured our redemption. Thirdly, third characteristic of Christ's suffering, it secured our redemption. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. This is what He achieved. He suffered for our sins. He substituted Himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, for this purpose, that He might bring us to God. But you see, this was our great need. You who are outside of Christ, or you children who have not yet closed with Christ, this is your great need. There is this great chasm between you and God that sin has introduced. Our brother Brad Kinnison quoted Isaiah 57, 15, thus says the high and holy one, the one who is high and lifted up, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a humble and contrite spirit. There's this distance that needs to be scaled between the high and holy God and lowly sinful people like us. This has always been the issue. And the, 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 the cry of the Bible, the tension that is built up throughout so much of the Old Testament is who's going to bear us to God? Who can bring us to this God? Who can reconcile us to God? How can sinful, lowly creatures of the dust, the worms that we are, how can we be brought into fellowship and communion with our Maker? And that is what this verse is answering. It is only through Jesus Christ, God's own Son. Peter is saying that God's Son, the Lord Jesus, He is the only one who could bear us safely to God. He secures our redemption in His death on the cross. It is through the sacrifice of His blood that He is able to be the only mediator between God and man. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He is our great high priest. He is our advocate. He is the one who can present us to God whole and forgiven and righteous in His sight. And what a glorious truth for sinners who feel their ugliness and their wickedness and their deadness in sin, for people who do feel like worms in God's eyes, to be then told that every initiative has been taken, every provision has been made to bring you into reconciled relationship with God. There is a way. There is a way. You know, we quote that verse. I think I said this when I preached in the series in John, John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's often the proof text to go to when you're seeking to speak of the exclusivity of the gospel message. 
in a pluralistic age when people think there are many ways to God, we say, no, 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 no. And we close off all these other ways, say there's only one way, the way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus Christ, and no one can come to the Father except through Him. I don't think that's the way those words hit the ears of those first disciples. We're missing something. We should say that, right? But we're missing something of that's all we say. Jesus is the only way, but the point is there is a way. Jesus is the way. There is one who could bear us safely to God, and Jesus is that way. And all who come to Him in saving faith can come to God and be reconciled to God through the way that is Jesus Christ. And as John would later say, who was there when Jesus uttered those words and who wrote that gospel, He is the propitiation not only for our sins but for the whole world. There's a way by which the whole world can be reconciled to God. And it is through the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, the righteous who sacrificed himself for the unrighteous, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who can bear our souls safely to God. Friends, brothers and sisters, we have been brought to God by the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, and there is nothing left to be done other than to trust the Lord Jesus and His grace and to embrace His finished work for sinners. I need to move more quickly now. There's a, a fourth point I wanted to make about the character of Jesus' death. It was, or His suffering, excuse me, it was that it was a fleshly death. It was a fleshly death, His suffering. It was, it was fleshly. I think that's how we're to understand the end of verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So some people think it's this idea that He died in the flesh, but His Spirit was still alive in that period between the burial of Christ and His resurrection. I don't think that's the idea at all. Spirit should be capitalized. It should be the Holy Spirit. He was put to death in the flesh or by the flesh, by fleshly means, by fleshly people, and His flesh was put to death. But the Spirit of God, with its seal upon the Lord, was raised to new life. And in other places, like Romans 8, Paul will make this point that the Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead also lives within us and will raise us as well and raises us to newness of life. That's the idea, I think, there. It was a fleshly death. I'm going to move on from that point. I'm sorry, I can't spend more time there, but as the clock is ticking, I want to get to some of these applications. I want to remind you of the context in which 1 Peter 3.18 is presented. We've been away from it for a second. There are truths in this verse that just kind of rise above the rest of the passage. Now I want to remind you of the context. The context is the suffering of God's people at the hands of unbelievers. It is God's people enduring the hostility and hatred of the world that Jesus promised would come in the upper room. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He's talking to Christians who are suffering presently. This is their existential moment. They are suffering for righteousness' sake. They're suffering for doing good. And thus, my applications are directed at Christians here who suffer also the hostility of the world and suffer also for doing good. So I'm not thinking now about Christians who suffer for the wrong that they do. You know, if you steal something and then suffer for that, well, you should suffer. And Peter's going to say that in chapter 4. Uh, moreover, I'm not talking about the kind of suffering that's common to every man, believer and unbeliever alike. Natural disasters come upon believers and unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers get cancer. I'm talking about that peculiar suffering, because this is what Peter's talking about, that Christians receive while they do good in the world from the hands of unbelievers. So I have four brief lines of application 
and then we'll be done. First of all, brothers and sisters, if Christ wasn't above suffering, we aren't above suffering. A servant is not greater than his master. If Christ wasn't above suffering, we are not above suffering. I think this is Peter's point. He tells them they're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. They're going to suffer at the hands of the world for doing good. And then why then does he bring up the Lord's suffering? It is to say even our Lord and Master wasn't above suffering. Christ has suffered. How can we expect anything less? If Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, surely we can suffer at the hands of our fellow sinners. You see, there's an asymmetry between the suffering of Jesus, our Master, and the suffering of His servants. We suffer unrighteous people at the hands of other unrighteous people. He suffered the sinless righteous one in the place of the unrighteous. There's a very basic point here that I think we can easily miss. When I am suffering for righteousness sake, and indeed all Christians at some point suffer for righteousness sake, I'm to remember that Jesus my Lord suffered too. And that is to fill me with comfort. When I suffer injustice, when I suffer for doing good, I'm to remember Jesus suffered as well. My master suffered as well. I'm following my Lord in this. And he is with me in a special way in the context of my sufferings. Too, too often, I see this happening in myself and in others. We get so caught up in the injustice of it all. We're being mistreated. We're being slandered. We're being unfairly maligned. We're suffering for righteousness sake. We're enduring some kind of abuse or oppression from others. And we get so caught up in the injustice and the unfairness of it all that we miss we miss something we're meant to see in the context of our sufferings. We are suffering as our Lord has suffered. And, and there's, there's a measure of intimacy of fellowship I'm to experience in the context of my suffering. I come to know the Lord better as I then can in a special way reflect upon His sufferings and how much greater His suffering was in my place. This might be what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Philippians 3 when he says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Peter is saying, Christian, in suffering, as you suffer for righteousness' sake, you have a friend. You have someone who has gone before you. You have your master who suffered also. And we need to allow that to fill our hearts with comfort when we suffer in this world for doing good. A second point of application, because Christ suffered... Praise God, we have a pattern to follow in our suffering. Because Christ suffered before us, we have a pattern to follow in our suffering. Jesus has shown us how to suffer well. It's implied here in our text, and it's stated explicitly, you might remember, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look back at 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. For to this, that is suffering, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus left footprints for you to follow in in the valley of suffering. He gave you a how-to program, a four-step program for how to suffer well. And what's the model he sets for us? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Step number one in following the example of our Lord, when we suffer, when He suffered, He committed no sin. 
So often we hear this, don't we? Our sufferings are being treated unfairly, unjustly. That becomes an excuse for sin. Well, well, surely you could understand, in light of what I'm going through, if I fly off the handle a little bit, or if I knock a few back, get a little tipsy, or if I access this sin or indulge in this or that. Well, you know, I know that my behavior wasn't great, but you should have seen what he said to me or what she did to me. We justify sin, but no, the model that's set for us in our suffering for righteousness' sake is the Lord who committed no sin. When he suffered, he did not sin. Step two, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He spoke the truth. He didn't deceive. He wasn't duplicitous. Number three, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Oh, that that can be written over every Christian's life. We don't revile back. Christians should be known for that. When we're wrongly treated, we don't revile in return. We don't return threatening with threatening and sin with sin. We're like our Lord, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Step four, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. He wasn't going to get even, take vengeance into his hands but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How do we suffer well? How do we follow the example of our Lord in suffering? We leave it to God. We trust him. He will do right. He will do well. I will rest in the one who judges justly. Because Christ suffered, we have a pattern to follow in our suffering. Third point of application, because Christ suffered, all of our suffering has meaning. Because Christ suffered for us, All of our suffering has meaning. Pastor Lai Chow said this in his message last week, we are never called to suffer for suffering's sake. Aren't you thankful for that? God never calls us to suffer for suffering's sake. There is no tear you're going to cry that won't be redeemed. He doesn't call us to suffer for suffering's sake. We are never called to purposeless suffering. Suffering in the life of the Christian is always purposeful. Brother, sister, God will redeem it. God will work through it. God uses suffering in the life of the believer just as the suffering of Christ had redemptive ends in view. So our suffering can and will be redeemed. Fourthly and finally, fourth point of application, leaving now the theme of suffering. From the standpoint of Christian assurance, From the standpoint of Christian assurance, we should enter into all the security and safety this passage affords. From the standpoint of Christian assurance, we should enter into all the security and safety this passage affords. For any here who struggle to find assurance of your salvation, you've been born again, but you struggle, am I really saved? Am I right with God? Can it really be for any here who struggles with assurance, and that's a lot of Christians. Well, there's a lot that can be said and should be said for each peculiar case, but I just want to say very simply, this is the only place where you will find resolution. It is in what your Lord has done. You're just not going to arrive at a place of assurance that you are right with God. Until you appreciate what Christ has done in suffering once for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bear your soul safely to God. Christian, if you look inward, you will always be discouraged. You must look outward to Christ. You must get there. 
and seeing what Christ has done for your poor soul. Resolution is only going to be found in what our Lord has done once for all at the cross in our place. Assurance is to be found where faith first was found. It is to be found in Jesus Christ. And to those outside of Christ, I want to say to you, this is the heart of the gospel message. This is the essence of the good news, that God sent His own Son into the world to die once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And I assure you, by the power of God and on the testimony of His Word, that He can bear you safely to God. That is what you need, one who can reconcile us to God. And the Lord Jesus is that way. He is that sacrifice. He is the one who can bring us to God. Let's pray together. Father, if we were there in the garden when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit in direct defiance of Your command, when they entered into sinful rebellion and thus plunged the whole human race into sin, we would not have expected that You would be so merciful to us. And Lord, we could not have imagined a way by which all the ruin that sin created in our world and in our hearts could ever be made right. But where there was no way, you have made a way. You've made a way in the person of your own dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our faith, based upon what you have revealed, that he can bring us to God. That for so many of us here, he has brought us to God. That he has suffered in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. Oh, that every soul here would believe the gospel as it's preached this morning that they would embrace the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Is there anything, Father, better than being reconciled with You, being made Your own sons and daughters, being brought back into communion with the true and living God? Help us to enter into all the security and safety and privilege that belongs to us as the children of God. For those here who are struggling, struggling to believe that the blood of Christ is really enough, that what our Lord did those 2,000 years ago on the cross outside the city, that, that that really can save, convince them afresh of these truths, that Christ has died as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins, that He has satisfied the wrath of God through the offering up of Himself, and that when He comes again, it's not going to be to deal with sin, not for those who are the children of God, but to receive all those who eagerly wait for Him. Teach us what that waiting looks like. And in the meantime, give us assurance and faith in what our Lord has done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.